Welcome to another episode of Horrorversary, the podcast that celebrates horror movies celebrating anniversaries. If you've never listened to the show before, welcome in. We've, we've been off for a little bit. My name's Adrian Torres. I'm your host. And on this show, we like taking a look back at, what well, first of all, horror movies. Second of all, ones that are celebrating anniversaries. But I'm going to put a little indicator on that. We don't just do the random ones. You see people who are like, it's 42 years since this movie came out. We should talk about it. Even though you could have done so a couple of weeks earlier. No, we stick with the hard and true when it comes to the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, the big milestones. And that's because anytime you hit one of those decades, first of all, there's a movie that deserves to be discussed. And then second of all, that's the point when everyone's looking back and taking stock and saying, what did we miss about this movie? What is it about this movie that we love to hold on to? Now, like I said, we've been off for a little bit. You may have seen that the last episode that came out was all the way back in March when we were talking about everything that had just come out of South by Southwest. And then the world, well, the world gets crazy sometimes and you kind of have to take stock. And I've always kind of viewed this show as a whole bunch of miniseries stuck together and kind of like before everybody changed the way that they were doing television, you had you know, everyone over in the UK is like, we're doing six episodes, we're doing 10 episodes. So I like keeping it if we're able to do, you know, magically maybe 12 episodes or so. And so to kick this off, I wanted to do something even more different. It's great having one guest come on and talk about a movie and what's great about it. And we're definitely going to get into that here. But I wanted to celebrate both the month that we're in and then just podcasts in general. and do a little series that I'm calling Dastardly Duos. And that means that for every guest that we're going to have, it's actually going to be two and it's going to be podcasters. And that's because it's difficult enough for somebody to say, oh, I really love this movie and want to talk about it. But then, well, if you listen to podcasts, usually the magic that you have is either the camaraderie or somebody, sometimes the, the butting of heads when it comes to podcasters. So getting two individuals to choose a movie that they both really want to discuss, well, that's something kind of special. And when you're talking about the movie tonight, which is, of course, 1981's Happy birthday to me. You really want a group of people to get together and talk about it. Okay. Okay. You know, I, I, I rambled on like I normally do. And now we've got the guests at the door and I'm really excited to bring these two gentlemen back to the show. And that's because we've had them on separate times. Of course, one of them was here to talk about the wonderfulness of Rada Mitchell and Rada Mitchell and, and some more Rada Mitchell and you know that that one guy who's bald and the aliens and stuff like that that doesn't that doesn't matter but it was pitch black and then the other time well the other time was this little movie that was called Sorority Row and it was a film that was wonderful to discuss on here because for about two years or so anytime somebody would ask this individual hey record a podcast on this episode well he would point people towards the show here and then of course he went and recorded it on his normal show like he should have done. And well, the past is the past because these two gentlemen are absolutely wonderful. From Horror Queers, we have Joe Lipset and Trace Thurman. How's it going, guys? Hey, man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm sorry we were knocking so hard. We just really wanted to come inside. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, there's potentially a murderer on the loose. Now, <laughs> before we, you know, before we get into this, I, 
I know that it might date, you know, when this episode's coming out and everything, but you hear everyone when they're coming back and doing podcasts and everything, they're talking about how things have been, you know, for the last year and stuff like that and everything that's, that's happened, you know, since the pandemic and growth that people might've had or, you know, experiences they've gone through and stuff like that. And I'm somebody who's, who's been taking stock of things and, and wanting to do better, you know, out there and wanting to have people on the show that everybody can, first of all, get behind or, or want to hear the opinions of and stuff like that. And I, I don't really think that I would have been as far as I have been on this journey, either podcasting or writing, if it wasn't from the interactions that I had with, with these two kind individuals. Now, I know some people might argue, depending upon the day, the kindness part, but but they are. And, <laughs> and so I wanted to to celebrate them for a moment before we get into the movie, because when I was first starting out and stuff, uh, Trace was one of the first two people that I came across who I was like, oh, my God, I've been reading this person's stuff and they're, they're, they're fantastic. And they treated me like a regular individual and made me feel like I belonged. <laughs> Wait, this is this is a fantastic fest, right? This was at fantastic. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was just a nice little moment because it was one of those that I was, you know, you know, starting my my journey and didn't really know people, and you you're kind of you know scared and stuff like that. And so Trace being so so welcoming and and as Trace as he could be was was wonderful. <laughs> and and the fact that I'm really excited anytime that I'm you know see him to talk about movies and stuff like that, and then. Joe, of course, was a couple years later at Fantastic Fest. It was the same year that these two gentlemen first got to actually meet in person. Mm-hmm. And one of the last nights that we were there, Joe was was very nice and complimentary to me. And it, it came at a point that there was lots of stuff that was going on behind the scenes at the place that I was writing. And and things were kind of up in the air and, and turmoil. And just to you know have somebody say something re- really nice, you know, it, it goes a long way. So I just wanted to take a moment and, and, and thank you guys for, for, for what you do. Well, I mean, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, it's so kind. It, it, it is a miracle. What can happen when you're, when you're nice to people, but I get though. I mean, and Joe, I don't know if you had this experience because I know you do TIFF and everything and Fantasia, but like um, back when, you know, in-person festivals were more common, are you more of a I'm 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 working I'm doing a job I'm going to review 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 or are you like do you mix that with hanging out because I know Fantastic Fest is a more casual <laughs> say festival but, but, but because it's one location it's really like built around communication but I still talk I still see people that are like oh yeah like I just like it feels very clicky at Fantastic Fest and I'm like well that's sad like come oh. talk to us <laughs> That's interesting. I can understand why people might say that, but I will say having had the experience of going to many film festivals and other places, Mm -hmm. there is something nice about the camaraderie that comes out of Fantastic Fest. Like I can appreciate people might feel, oh, I'm seeing all the people I know. And as a result, I'm buzzing around. And I think it would be hard for someone who didn't know people in person. But I will say that there's a far more sociable atmosphere at that festival than other ones where I mean, sure, there's parties at other places, but I don't know that there's as much encouragement to just like stick around, talk about the movies and have a good time with the other people at the fest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it def- definitely because of the times that I've, you know, r- run into to Trace hasn't just been Fantastic Fest. It's then been when yeah. I've been in Austin for for South by Southwest. And it's but it's nice because it's kind of with how crazy things are with that. It's you run into somebody for a second and it's like 
there's even more excitement because it's kind of like finding Waldo in the crowd that you don't know who <laughs> you're going to run into with, with certain screenings and you, you might go the entire time that you're there only seeing like two or three people and, and seeing that all these other people are seeing movies and they're like, I haven't seen you anywhere because we weren't in the same shows. Yeah, Horrorversary listeners, just to paint a picture, like Fantastic Fest is all at one theaters and like all the screenings are like in blocks. So when everyone's done with their movies, they just walk outside and everyone's talking. Whereas South by Southwest is literally over the entire downtown area of Austin. So <laughs> it's you're not just going to like run into people like in one spot every time. It's more like a happenstance type of thing or you have to go out of your way to make plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one year that I went and. I saw Trace the final day that I was in town at like one of the last shows, but throughout the entire weekend that I was there, the only person that I continually ran into, whether it be on the streets or in certain showings, was another critic from Kansas City. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, of course, of course. You again. Yeah. Mm. Save for, of course, going and and visiting the the people who are always stuck behind um, the, the main theater for the main uh, opening night show who've been there for four hours ahead of time. So, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily count. Of course, that's not what we're here to talk about <laughs> today. We're going all the way back to 1981. Now, I was really excited that you guys chose 1981 because you always hear people talk about, I think it's the summer of 86, you know, that people always say is the, the, the greatest, um, you know, time for films ever with everything that was coming out. But when it comes to horror, I think that 1981 is one of those years. Some of the quality might waver. That's that's true. But you look mm-hmm. at like all the cult films that came out in, in 1981. Like if you were to ask somebody, you know, to say, hey, of the last, you know, 40 years or so, what are your 25 favorite films uh, when it comes to horror? There's a chance that at least one of those is going to be, you know, from, from that year. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm looking at the list right now and I'm like, holy shit, you're right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, There's... we are in the heyday of the slasher in 1981. <laughs> like this is when the production is at its utmost. I would actually argue that this is the last year before the bubble bursts. And then people start to say, oh, well, slashers are just oversaturated and we can't handle them anymore. You're right. But it's not even just slashers, though. Like an American werewolf in London is 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, Evil Dead is technically 1981. Um, the Howling is 81. Uh but then, yeah. yes, then like 50 slashers. <laughs> <laughs> so many of them were all released on the same weekend. So like if you were alive in 1981 and old enough to get into an R-rated movie, you could hypothetically go and see multiple slasher films in a single weekend. And they wouldn't have known what they were even getting, right? So they would have just had commercials and marketing and go in and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm about to see Evil Dead tonight and then something else that's completely random and insane the next day (laughs) especially if people were doing double features at like Mm drive-ins and stuff it was just the variety that they'd probably be able to wind up with but but let's jump into it if you're somebody who's listening to the show for the first time or you're somebody who hasn't listened in a while the way we have this set up it's very simple we normally have one guest and you know for dastardly duos it's going to be two But the guests come on with a movie that they've selected, and I have five set questions that we ask every single guest. Where the discussion goes and any sub-questions we have that, you know, are in there just depends upon the the flow of conversation, which, of course, with the three of us means that there's going to be a lot to talk about. But I do want (laughs) to say we start out with a very, very basic question, but for we're not going to get too deep into the movie itself, just just with your your history. 
Now, before we get to that, we need to give a little bit of background because when it comes to this movie, I think Happy Birthday to me is one that's slowly and steadily getting more and more talked about, but it's not one of those that's like on the tier one or tier two when most people talk about it. So we'll give you a little bit of background. This movie, of course, as we said, comes out in 1981. It's produced by um, Cinepex or sorry, Cinepix. It's one of those where it's got the little line up there because, of course, they're they're Canadian. So I don't want to get it wrong because I don't know which part of Canada they started out in. But there were two gentlemen who basically run this company, John Dunning and Andre Link. And they wanted to get into, you know, the realm of of making big movies. And they had two films that you would say necessarily put them on the map. You've got this film in 1981 and oh you have another movie in 1981 called my bloody valentine my bloody valentine's released first but this one was actually in production before that this movie's actually in production a couple months before friday the 13th comes out so while most people would say that it it may have been a cash grab on that when it came to the slasher boom it was more so all those films that were coming steadily in after halloween and the two guys who were the producers saw that everybody was snatching up a whole bunch of different holidays, which, of course, <laughs> slowly in development, they had a Valentine's Day film. But they decided, what's the one thing that everybody has in common? A birthday. And that was the genesis of when they launched into this film. And it's an interesting history when you go into it. And we'll talk about the film itself. But I wanted to start out just mentioning a couple of the key players and stuff like that, because this movie's made by J. Lee Thompson. And he was a British film director who did a whole bunch of movies back in the day. Two ones that people would probably very much know as The Guns of Navarone and the original Cape Fear. He was also worked with. um, Sorry, now I'm blanking. It's uh, Alfred Hitchcock. For, for years in various different capacities. And because of the work that he had with him, he wanted to go on and make a true deep-seated horror film. So when these guys came to him, he jumped at the chance. Now, the funny thing is the other reason why people might know him is because for the period of time before this movie and after this movie, he made several films with Charles Bronson. So it's a very weird and interesting career that he had. When you jump onto the other side of when it comes to the writing, that's where things get weird with this film. The main credited writer is John C.W. Saxton, who is actually a professor of English at the University of Toronto when the two guys came to him with the initial idea for the film. If you go online, one of the earliest drafts of the script is actually a third draft of the script, but it has no name attached to it which the characters are a little bit different. There's events that don't show up in the movie itself in a completely different ending to what we will very much talk about. Mm -hmm. But based off of that script, you end up bringing on two other uh, writers, Peter Jobin and Timothy Bond, who were two guys who didn't really do a whole bunch in their career writing wise, except for an episode of Friday the 13th, the series after this. And uh, Timothy Bond goes on to become a big TV director, which people of a certain age would know him because he directed a whole bunch of the Goosebumps TV episodes. <gasps> oh, that's really fun. <laughs> and, and, including all of the Night of the Living Dummy episodes. I mean, mm-hmm. classics, obviously. So they come in and rewrite the script, which is what actually becomes the shooting script 
sometime in the middle of production, we won't mention their name again because we'll get to it, but the person who is the main antagonist of this movie is told that they are the main antagonist. But that wasn't something that was in the script. Now, anywhere you look online, you are going to see one person who is listed as uncredited. They're uncredited, but to what extent is not known. You see the name John Beard attached continually, whether it's IMDb, whether it's various different websites that are doing research onto it. They all list his name as being, you know, uh, doing an, an uncredited rewrite. So the thought initially would go is that maybe he came in to rewrite that the ending of the film because there's no other connection except for he does have a connection to the producers of this movie because John Beard is the guy who ends up writing my bloody Valentine. Mm -hmm. Mm. So it's a really weird web that you have within the fact that you have this company that's making these two movies in the middle of production. There's a different (laughs) ending, which changes everything in the film, but not only that. Oh, it's, I think it's interesting, too, though, because, I mean, yeah, Beard did these two movies and this company did these two movies, but, like, it wasn't really anything after this. Like, after no. My Bloody Valentine and this came out, it was like, all right, I guess we're out of the business. I mean, they obviously still worked in the business, but they didn't have any other movies that were, like, on this level. Or I guess maybe just any slasher movies either. I, I think because of everything that happens with the, the 80s and with the slasher boom is mm-hmm. I, I think there's people who went in to make money and then mm-hmm. just got out of that side of it. And I think that there's people who... A few of them may have been smart enough that when they made their money, they realized just how saturated everything was going to become. And when you look at 1981 and Joe wasn't joking when he's saying that there's essentially like 50 slasher films that are coming out, the next several years just get worse and worse with how much is in there that if you're astute, you might take a look at it and said, okay, we did two. How long can we really do this for? Yeah, that and also there's a Canadian factor at play here. So um, (laughs) the fact the fact that people were rushing to Canada to cash in on the tax shelter era. So before Canada really became Hollywood North, there's this big rush from it's almost like a gold rush of like U.S. producers and directors like coming up north and trying to capitalize on the tax break so that they could make a mint making a cheap horror film. And I this one is tricky because I think these guys actually are Canadian, but they mm. probably used a lot of U.S. talent. And there's a certain period where the money dries up, but also there's a lot of controversy in Canada about like, well, why are we getting tax breaks to make these shitty, horrible <laughs> horror movies that are, you know, sullying young minds and so on and so on? I think there's also the the piece in play that My Bloody Valentine gets picked up by Paramount. And Happy Birthday to Me gets picked up by Columbia. And mm-hmm. so instead of going through the the smaller, when, when they saw the money that they could, you know, make, even if it was just a little bit off a really cheap film, is that they probably said, you know what, we can go and do this ourselves. Why do we really need the middleman when we can just go and do it? We don't need to deal with these people. So there's a chance that that could have, you know, played a part in it for, for people like this, too. Mm-hmm. But of course, Joe did mention, you know, that that everybody mentioning the, the talent. And of course, you, you can't look at this movie without going, hmm, there's two things here that stand out more than the others. And of course, the main would be our lead actress of the film, Mary Sue Anderson. Melissa. Who, oh, Melissa. Sorry. Oh, man. See, I, that's why I can't read in the dark. 
always have bright lights. <laughs> but of course, she played Mary Ingalls in Little House on the Prairie. Did y'all watch that show? Yes. No, I, did I, not. I, I, I didn't mean to sound like a snob. Be like, did y'all watch Little House on the Prairie? No, no, no. It's just one of the. I, I was obviously like not young enough when it was airing, but also like I, I would. I remember like watching commercials for the reruns, and I would just see the title card come up, and I was like, this looks like not for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's aggressively not for you because it's very oh, no, much it's like family values out on the Western frontier. Like it's honestly kind of a precursor to Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, only with probably less action. Yeah, yeah I think I think that's I think it is that I can take the family values bullshit. But like, I think it's the um, it is the Western frontier thing that I'm like, ooh, like as soon as I because I, I don't know. Did you ever watch? um. Uh, there was a hey, hey, hear me out. Glenn Close and Christopher Walken in these movies called Sarah Plain and Tall. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I used to have to watch those in elementary school. Like whenever we had like a, I don't know, whenever it was raining and we couldn't go to recess, they would sit us our asses down and make us watch Sarah Plain and Tall. And I think ever <laughs> since then, anything that is like <laughs> this aesthetic of Little House on the Prairie or uh, what did you say, Joe? Um, oh, Doctor Quinn Medicine Woman. Yeah. yeah, my brain is like, nope, don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Trust is like, mm, there's a whiff of a western here. Mm-mm, no, not for me. Not for me. Yeah, and that and that was the opposite side. Was that my when we would come to kansas before moving here uh is that my my grandpa was a very big western person he mm-hmm. held the title uh, when he was alive as being the only non-artist that was a part of the caa which is the cowboy artist of america oh wow so he he very much was uh all big into that you know he got to meet basically any big you know, uh, a star that you can think of, of of stage and screen from like the 70s and 80s and stuff, because he would go on numerous different cattle rides with them and stuff and that he was a lawyer. So he would help them with stuff. So he he was very much steeped in that West in that Western style. So mm-hmm. but he didn't like the show, but he forced me to watch it. <laughs> like it was at the entry point. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I stayed away from Touched by an Angel. So. Yeah, that's that's all I watched that. that. But then on the other side of things, you have Glenn Ford, who, if we're talking about old school, this was Mr. Classic Hollywood, you know, being, I guess most people would know him as Pa Kent from (laughs) the the Christopher Reeve uh, Superman movie. But I mean, he went back so much further than that. You know, he was in Gilda, he was in Courtship of Adderley's Father, and who could forget he was also in The Visitor. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's what I had to mention. I, that. <laughs> I, I didn't forget. I did. I just didn't know. <laughs> he's he's one of the five thousand old Hollywood actors who randomly shows up in the Visitor for like a couple minutes, and you're like, him? Yeah. What? Hmm. But of course, this movie it, it's it's known for a lot of reasons, and and part of it is because well, there, there's a Canadian aspect that it was made there and then there's the aspect that it's a little bit viewed classier than most other films i kept seeing that in researching this movie and i I, you know i saw the director's statements that was like oh yeah like you know this is a movie that really focuses on characters (laughs) and like it it does stuff and i was like Hmm. which um, movie is he talking about i I mean look i mean we we can we can say this right now this movie is about 20 minutes too long and has about four to five too many characters um I do enjoy this movie, but yeah, I, I don't. I don't see this character development that they're telling us outside of maybe um, Melissa Sue Anderson's character. 
Well, I think it's her relationship with the doctor as well. Like this film feels like it's trying to address psychology. And Mm -hmm. in reality, this is pop psychology. This is like we cracked open a textbook at U of T, (laughs) read up on something Freudian and then said, cool, let's do a scene that includes brain surgery in this movie. But I think compared to something like Friday the 13th, where it's all about people getting horny and getting down at camp, this is... yeah, like it's not classy, but I think it's classier than what a lot of other films were giving it, people at the point. It's presenting as classy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, I think this is the best place to to get into the very first question that, that we ask everyone. And that's, do you remember the first time that you saw Happy Birthday to Me? I definitely watched this in high school it was one of those when i was like again when my mom raised the curtain and let me watch as many already movies as i wanted it was definitely one of those ones that i had on our netflix queue that i just watched but the thing is like honestly i kind of forgot most things about it until like oh god probably five years ago when i was writing for bloody and i was trying to churn out you know like clickbait articles and <laughs> i was like oh what can i do oh let's compare happy birthday to me to bloody birthday and i'd never seen bloody birthday and i remember nothing about happy birthday to me and i watched it again and i was struck by not only how long it was but also <laughs> also how buck wild it gets but again like for, for the lasting impact of this movie again like watching it today so what? This is the third time I've seen this movie. Again, I was like, oh, right. Like, I- I've forgotten everything about it except for this ending. Mm-hmm. But then as we kind of start going on, I was like, oh, right. This is the one with the birthday party, which obviously I should get that walking into it. <laughs> like, this is the one with the drunk mom. This is the one with the, 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 the let's play chicken over the bridge. Mm-hmm. So it's a, again, it's a movie that I do enjoy. But for some reason, it's like every time I watch it, my mind immediately wipes any memory of it as soon as the yeah. credits roll. Yeah, it's like you enter a fugue state. Okay, that was enjoyable. Oh, wait, what am I even talking about? I've forgotten. (laughs) So I had seen this. I can't remember exactly when, but I kind of like Trace went through a fallow period where I didn't watch very much horror. And then I felt like it was becoming upon me to like, that's not even a word. Uh, It was imperative that I sort of fill in the gaps in my knowledge. So I went on a bender and just watched, I think, every slasher film I could find. And I think I missed this with the first time around. But then I was prepping a slasher course because I taught a course on slashers at uh, university, which is college for you Americans. And um, so I was trying to fill in a bunch of those gaps. And this is one of the ones where I thought, oh, this is a Canadian film. I should be aware of this. And when I watched it, it was very much on the tagline, you know, six of the most bizarre murders you're ever going to see. (laughs) And I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be sensational. And shockingly enough, I found only one or two of them lived up to the premise, but Mm. I liked the idea behind it. And I actually, it's funny because I just said, oh, well, it's not that classy, but it does feel different than a lot of other films and not knowing that it was made by the same people who made my bloody valentine i'm like oh i definitely see the connection out because it does have the same kind of vibe to it yeah well 
it, honestly, for, I had it in my memory that they were all college kids. So the fact yes. that they are in high school, like, is I, I think it would work better. Well, they better look they old were... as fuck, which is one of the reasons. <laughs> 100%. But again, watching this, and I mean, not to like, you know, go on a tangent, but like, I was like, you know, you could take this concept and remake it into something good. You know, cut down a few characters, <laughs> streamline <laughs> the narrative, and like, again, like, kind of make these kills more mm-hmm. bombastic, like the marketing promise. And I was like, you know, mm-hmm. you could do something with this. An imperfect slasher movie that has that has something here that is worth exploring more. Oh, yeah. Like, absolutely. I'm so surprised that we never got a remake of this in the aughts. Yeah. Because this is prime real estate. Mm-hmm. I think it's because that kind of weird blackout state, much like Virginia has in, in the movie, uh, that, <laughs> that everybody kind of has towards the movie where you forget parts of it. And so I think mm-hmm. that's that's why it kind of you know, is out of the public consciousness for a period of time. I mean, you, you want to look at the, like the weird release um, of this movie. I, uh, when it was came out on DVD, like one of the original times it was with uh, when a stranger calls. Yeah. Like, oh, like, 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 like in a shared disc. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then when they put it out by itself on DVD, it had, uh, some terrible, terrible cover art. You you can easily go online and you know just put in "Happy Birthday to Me," and if, when you look at the images, one of the first ones you'll see is this terrible image of Virginia that's been photoshopped to death, holding a cake, <laughs> and it just looks very, very bad. And then when it came out on Blu-ray, it was released. Um, what's it called overseas in the UK through Indicator with a, a DVD Blu-ray combo, uh, but it's since gone out of print. I, I'm sorry, I, holy shit. I just Googled that picture. Yes. <laughs> they give her like demon eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and the crazy blue that's behind her. Yeah, it's so, it, it looks like there's a castle behind her and it's like, that's not the movie. And, but but I, you're not going to pick up that, that DVD when you see it because it's just, no, you feel weird touching it because you're like, I don't know what this is. And I don't mm-hmm. want a part of it. And like I said, it was Indicator that put it out in the UK. So you didn't really have that big Blu-ray release over here through somebody like Scream or mm-hmm. even Arrow or one of those to really mm-hmm. have people latch onto it. I mean, you didn't even have like a Code Red uh, a release at the time of it, which when a movie gets a release like that uh, with the age that we're in when it comes to boutique Blu-rays is that there's right. many times that people are like, I don't know what this is, but if this company's putting it out, I'm buying it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I do think that this movie is actually hurting because it doesn't have a better blue slash DVD release. Like mm-hmm. I have the one that I got when Blockbuster went out of business and it's, <laughs> you know, yeah, it has the cool art of uh, what's his face getting the shish kebab in the mouth, which is yeah. fantastic. But uh, apart from that, there's nothing on that DVD. Like well, it is but- bare bones and I don't understand why, because I've seen worse films than this get way better treatment. <laughs> so Mill Creek released a Blu-ray of this two years ago. Um, and but and it's one of those cool ones. That, like, it looks like VHS cover art, but it also like you can see like the cassette coming out. So it oh, kind of OK, looks like, oh, cool. OK. But the, but the problem is, again, I say Mill Creek. Mill Creek puts out mostly shit content that are better. Oh, so nobody paid like, attention. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, like, uh, the video and audio are fine, but there's absolutely no extra features on it. And it's like, yeah, oh, like, I mean, right. this seems like something where it's like, oh, yeah, why, why are there no retrospectives? Why are there no commentaries? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just one of those things. 
Wait, okay, you said the VHS one, so I know, yeah, I know exactly, because they had a line that they put out of mm-hmm. just some really weird titles, because that's when I picked up uh, The New Kids. No, I don't know that one. You guys, oh, don't you guys don't know that one? Oh, okay, okay. No, the, like the band? The pop band? No, we'll, we'll get on to, to question but, number two, but we need to take a, a side little dive here for The New Kids, because The New Kids is, a, it's another... Uh, film that's only recently in the last couple of years kind of starting to get more prominence and with people talking about it. Uh, but it's Sean S. Cunningham who directed oh, it. Okay. It's um, the bad guy, quote unquote, who's super fucking creepy and has the worst Southern accent you've ever heard. Oh my God, is, Lori Loughlin is yeah, in this? No, James Spader's the bad guy with bleach right. blonde hair. Super um, bleach blonde hair. And he also, you, you are right, Adrian. It, so it, it is Mill Creek, and it was released just seven months after this Blu-ray of Happy Birthday to Me was released. Oh. Yeah, because it was and, the, the VHS cover thing that I was like, oh, that mm-hmm. seems cool. And then saw the movie, and I was like, okay, would you want to talk about, like, uh, turns tonally that a movie takes in, like, the last 20 or 30 minutes? That movie becomes both evil and gnarly as fuck. So... Hmm. Yeah, I've definitely seen people post about this. I've seen like garbage gore hounds posting about this movie. Yeah, like you watch it and you're like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? It's kind of like this one where all of a sudden there's there's turns that come out of nowhere. And yeah, James Spader is just the worst motherfucker in that movie. I mean, consider this is a movie I have never heard of or like anything. I've never even seen people tweet about this. So. I c- consider me intrigued because this looks bonkers <laughs> because it's Mill Creek. It's normally like you can find it online for like f- between five to seven dollars. So yeah, right. no. <laughs> so, so go for it. or Tubi for free. <laughs> oh, there you go. Perfect. Yeah. If it's on Tubi, then do it. Tubi, not a sponsor, but hopefully someday. <laughs> uh, so question two, I've reworded, it, I think, 70 different times in the 30 some odd episodes we've done with this. And that's because if I'm not careful with how I word it, Things go very badly. And so that's in as few non-spoilery words as possible. Give a synopsis for the uninitiated of Happy Birthday to Me. Oh, I mean, okay. So here, that's kind of tricky though, right, Joe? Because like, mm-hmm. the, I, I mean, I clocked this. Like the reveal of the mother. Okay, too happens. many words. Too many words. No, I, 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 sorry, I, I'm I'm trying to talk this through with both of you because I'm like, well, what <laughs> yeah. do I include? Because do I include the mother thing, which isn't revealed until 80 minutes into the movie? <laughs> mm. I mean, I think, okay. So I'm going to give it a go. Go. Okay. So it's a film about... Ginny. She is popular among the kids in high school. She has a tragic story that is revealed through flashback that she is also remembering at the same time. And her friends start to get picked off one by one in the days leading up to her birthday. Okay, wait, let me try. Brain damaged Ginny is a recent inductee into the top 10, the most popular kids at school, and is shocked to find out that in the days leading up to her 18th birthday, they all start to get killed off. Okay. 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 I'll, I'll go with it. Now here, here's what I like to do when it comes to, uh, to movies like this. When I ask people that question is I like to look online for, you know, like what IMDB or most places would have. So here's what IMDB says at the snobby Crawford Academy, Virginia's group of friends start to go missing after horrible events that happened to her as a child around her birthday. Hmm. 
See, that makes it seem like there's a complete lack of connection between what happened to her as a child and what is currently happening in the present day, when in fact they are directly connected. Correct Mm. me if I'm wrong, but is her birthday mentioned in the first half of this movie? Absolutely not. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Because again, again, I'm watching this movie with like a clean slate because I don't remember anything about it. And I'm like, well, I I know her birthday plays a part somehow. It's in the title. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's because in any other movie, it would be, you know, oh, I'm having these traumatic flashbacks because it has something to do like this all happened on my birthday and my birthday's coming up. And in this movie... It isn't until the mother reveal that you realize, oh, okay, yeah, her trauma did happen on her birthday because that's when mom got drunk and then they crashed the car. And we're we're oh. actually going to stop right there. Okay, I'm trying to find a moment in there because one of the things that we like to do on this show is say, hey, guess what? If you're going to deep dive into a movie that's you know twenty, thirty, forty some odd years old, you got to spoil the whole fucking thing. And there's yeah. a chance that even though we're thirty six minutes into this recording that you may not have seen the movie yet because we, like we said, it's one that not everybody has talked about. So to dive into these films, especially this goddamn one, you have to spoil everything. So we're going to take a slight pause here and make sure to pause the show yourself, go watch the movie and then come back. Now I will say ahead of time that you're going to have to spend a couple dollars on this one because that's going to be the easiest way to stream it. But it's only going to be a couple dollars. It's not one of those, like if you're seeing a new release recently and you spent $20 on it, this one's going to be a lot cheaper. So definitely take the dive in. And we're going to pause here. And we're back. There we go. You should have hit the button because you could have easily, you know, told one of your devices to pause it for you or hit your phone. So now it's up to you. I can't believe that Ginny got possessed by the ghost of her mom. Okay. Better movie though, right? <laughs> so, so of course, we're discussing at at first here what the original ending was going to be and what ties into the fact that she goes and visits her mom's grave at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, of course, when it came to that, and we we believe if you're going by online that that was the original um, writer of the film, the guy who was the professor at the University of Toronto had basically decided that Ginny was going to be the killer all along and that she was possessed by the spirit of her dead mother, uh, who was, it, 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 it's confusing, but they actually have <laughs> the script online. You can download the script for that, for what's considered the third draft of the film. And it has a, an ending to the movie that, is basically the end of the father day segment of creep show. Mm. It, like, cause it, it literally ends with, um, with Jenny with a knife to her, her father's throat uh, saying, do you want a big piece of cake daddy or a little piece? But and it's, it, it's made very clear that she's possessed by her mother. Correct. Correct. Okay. Uh, I mean, that, that would that would have been interesting considering Creep Show comes out the year after this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I I don't like. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just like the reasoning for cutting that was they thought it wasn't climactic enough, and so I'm like, okay, it 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 at least 
puts the movie in this realm of hyper realism, right? Or, mm-hmm. or is it the opposite? Whatever. It's a ghost. It's a ghost movie, right? We are changing the rules. Like we're prom night doing this bullshit. Yeah. It's and, a full on possession film in this case. Yeah. Which I think makes any stupid moments in the film, like make more sense. That being said, I don't dislike the ending we got. If only because the chloroform montage that we get, <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. I rewound it twice. <laughs> Because I could not stop watching. Like, Anne is... I'm sorry, we can spoil this, right? Yeah, I mean, okay. that's, that's the whole reason that, that we're in Okay, I, I just wanted which, to make which, sure. First of all, part of Anne, what I loved about, uh, about this movie upon this rewatch was forgetting little pieces of it. Like, as it's going along, I'm like, oh, okay, I remember... Mm-hmm. where this goes but i didn't remember like how they had the reveal so yeah w- when like, they when they had the mask coming off i literally had like in my eyes i'm like god damn it trace god damn it <laughs> so, why okay. why would that possibly have popped in my head trace you clued me into this before we started recording <laughs> and i was like what are you talking about and then i saw that you were referring to scooby-doo and i was like holy fucking shit it is scooby-doo <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've been committing murders on your behalf, Ginny. But like, I do think that one really, really innovative and subversive thing about this movie is that it quote unquote reveals the killer, Mm -hmm. you know, an hour into the movie. Yeah. And then it pulls the rug out from under us again. Yes. (laughs) And I think that's one of the things that upon rewatch that I, that I respected from, from a distance is that seeing all the different things that they were putting into this movie that would become tropes that everybody uses in all their other movies that, that they're clearly taking from not only like the slashers, but like that first kill that you have is definitely a Giallo kill. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking that I was literally, I'm so glad you said, I was literally about to ask that. Cause would y'all consider this? I mean, cause for the first half of this movie, yeah, we have a black glove killer. And of course we also know it's a, it's a, killer who's been traumatized mm-hmm. <laughs> um oh yeah all the flashback shit is straight up argento tenebrae kind of bullshit mm-hmm. um again though another slasher's aversion i love that this opening kill which i think the opening scene of this movie is fantastic oh, it's but great. we have a character that plays dead to get away from the killer and i <laughs> I clap. You never see I, it, I, right? You never see it, and it's so good because I, I, I always like just play dead. Like if someone's strangling you, play dead. <laughs> yeah, it's different if you're being stabbed. It's playing dead is not going to help you in that situation. <laughs> but yeah, if the person is just attacking you in your car, like yeah, go for it. Mm-hmm. And it's great because directly after that scene, um, when you go into the bar and you see how everything's set up, they automatically have uh, the the red herring with the way that they shoot it with uh oh. This person's coming in way later than everyone else. He's in a jacket. Mm-hmm. He's he's acting very scared. What's up with Alfred? And so, like from right off the bat, they they're they're doing that. You know, oh, what's this? And, and like and laying those seeds. But watching it and knowing eventually where it was going to go, I, like when it was creeping up on my mind, was even though it's out of left field, was the little pieces that they do have in there. You know, so like the really creepy scene that you have at Alfred's place with the head then become, you know, makes sense later on. Do mm-hmm. we, was that added, was that scene added later when they did the, when they rewrote the ending specifically to explain the Mission Impossible mask? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Like, that's the weird thing about the ending is no one knows exactly where exactly uh, the, the ending came from. That's why I was saying 
I I can assume to accredit it to John Beard because he mm-hmm. has the the un you know the uncredited aspect to it. And they literally came to the actress who was Anne halfway through production and let her and let her in on the ending and gave her the pages. And she was really confused because she had just filmed her death scene. Right. <laughs> well, and even as you said, Adrian, you know, there's this red herring of Alfred who's introduced in this first bar scene. Anne's already at that table. So we have mm-hmm. to assume that like she killed what's her face Bernadette like way earlier. And yeah, I I guess like a lot of this film doesn't quite hold up when you start to <laughs> unpack it but it also doesn't matter. Like it's not the kind of movie where I think, Oh, well the logic doesn't make sense because I don't think the logic ever makes sense in it. And that's not what I'm interested in. I mean, the the second that the mask comes off, it's like, Oh, it's that kind of movie. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's, it is, uh, we have this actress, Melissa Sue Anderson, like playing this role. And of course we go, Oh, she's wearing a mask, but Mm -hmm. it's still Melissa Sue Anderson's voice coming out of that body. (laughs) But then Anne, says i changed my face i changed my voice and i was like bitch you were doing a pitch perfect (laughs) melissa sue anderson no you did not ma'am i changed my i I have a follow-up question and um before you kill me how Mm -hmm. did you do that (laughs) (laughs) she whips out a ghost face like a voice thing from screen three like surprise melissa sue i mean there 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 are i think this film influenced scream in a lot of ways i could see that i i was more so picturing uh, John Lovitz on uh, on SNL and having her just go acting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, she goes big. She goes bold. But yeah, Trace, well, well, you mentioned it. I do want to say because I, I thought I was clever and ingenious when I tweeted it out and then nobody fucking cared. So I'm just going to say it on a podcast. <laughs> I think so it I lives in perpetuity. It. I think um, I liked it. Like, like, literally, I think I hit like maybe I didn't, but I okay, saw it. OK, OK. And I agree with you. <laughs> Yeah, so Anne's rationale for committing these murders is basically Billy's motivation from Scream mixed mm-hmm. with Roman's motivation from Scream 3. It's like, oh, oh you're <laughs> <laughs> like your dad was schlepping my mom and yeah. then uh yeah, and then my dad left as a result and so I started to murder all of your friends because your mom was a big ass hoe. <laughs> I think I got that wrong. I think it's Ginny's mom was fucking Anne's dad. There we go. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. but no, but she has the line like Billy where it's like, and that's, she's the reason my mom moved out and abandoned Basically, me. Basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or in this case, died. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but Anne's mom didn't die. No, 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 no. But I, I meant for, for. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. No, 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 sure. you, you, you still have the person who's. In, in this case, you think is doing the killing, but it's actually the person who's being preyed upon has lost the parent. That's the thing. And honestly, I do wonder if this movie, maybe if the pacing would be better or if it would help if this mother car crash thing, like we, we know there's something, we know her mom is dead. We know mm-hmm. she was in an accident that caused we know it has something damage. to do with water because this bitch can't get wet from like a breeze <laughs> without right. having a flashback. But I almost wonder, like, if, if maybe they had, because again, we get the first flashback, which just shows the accident 80 minutes in. And then mm-hmm. 10 minutes later, at the 90 minute mark, is when we get the reason as to why this accident happened. And I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I wonder if maybe they, if they had pieced this out throughout the film instead of saving it for, you know, an hour and 20 minutes into the movie, if it would work better. Well, yeah. I mean, do, do you think the, the inclusion or, how they put Glenn Ford in there as the doctor would, because they would need to change that around a bit, you know, by either having him in more scenes at certain points 
yeah or, or being more I'm trying to think of what the right word would would be because he's more a very effective. yes yes that, that that would be a good one or, or i think one of the mistakes that the film makes in my perspective is like there's a lot that hinges on dr Faraday's relationship with Ginny. yes and she has virtually no relationship with her dad outside of the one scene where he's like why can't you be normal and she's like <laughs> fuck off yeah And so for him to be the one at this, you know, kind of abandoned cottage with all the bodies at the end of the film, it makes sense if she's possessed, because then we can do, oh, my God, my daughter is acting like my dead wife. But (laughs) the way that it plays here, it's like, oh, no, this should be Dr. Faraday who's discovering like, oh, no, Ginny, you really are a kook. Oh, shit, you're not Ginny. Never mind. I also think that the way the film ends, and it's actually really, really sad, is that her father dies thinking that she is a psychopath and is also murdering him. Mm-hmm. He does not get to find out that it's actually Anne in disguise. <laughs> well, I yeah. mean, th- then you extrapolate that even further and that Ginny's life is destroyed because oh, yeah, she's she, getting locked up. Oh, yeah. yeah. She, she vanquishes Anne to save the day, but she's going to fry. So I love that. That is actually one of my favorite parts of this film because that ending is so dark. Okay, the so, movie almost doesn't even give you the opportunity to think about it. Oh yeah, so that, it, that, it, it ends right away. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a perfect segue to question three, which is: What is it to you? Do you think that keeps uh, a film like Happy Birthday to Me talked about? I mean, like we said, the release was weird over here, but Indicator, which is a huge boutique company over in the UK saw fit to give this a double disc release. I think it's the ending. I mean, I, I, I do not to say the movie is worthless without the ending, but I do no. think that just the sheer it's the bat shit. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the bat shit and bonkersness of this ending, which again, it makes no fucking sense. It's dumb as <laughs> hell, but it's also this weird. I mean, again, like, you know, Joe, you're right. Like th- this ending is dark, but through this lens of ridiculousness. And so mm-hmm. I think there's something about that that, I mean, again, your mileage may vary, but it really works for me. And again, there's a reason why every time I watch this movie, the only thing I remember is that there's some weird mask thing at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, even the way that it's shot and staged, there's something really iconic about a whole table full of dead bodies Mm -hmm. and this movie i was telling trace offline when we were watching this uh back and forth over the last 24 hours i was saying this film is curiously bloodless and it doesn't really focus on the gore like the brain surgery scene is actually more graphic than a lot of the murders because i remember the shish kebab being really painful and when it actually happens in the film like the box art is more graphic than what you see in the actual film. <laughs> the, the, are the two deaths that hit for you, Joe? Is it is it it's the um, the motorcycle death and the, um, the the weights death? I like the weights death the most because mm-hmm. it's definitely ridiculous. Like you would not you would not explode blood if a barbell <laughs> fell on your neck like that. <laughs> but it's highly effect. entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mind the bike death, but I want more of it. I want him to struggle because that that's actually part of my problem with the deaths in this. Mm-hmm. And I feel that it is uh, like I know the the filmmakers were actually worried that the film was being missold because the marketing was so uh, focused on the deaths and saying like, oh, it's really shocking. Yeah. I actually don't think that the film lingers on them enough to make them shocking. And see, that's the interesting thing when you're looking into the movie that there's 
first of all, there's lots of conjecture on everything because this is uh, what you would say was a classic of, of the time, like, mm-hmm. like the, the the Fangoria uh, effect. Oh, sure. Where where there were the set photos of things looking more bloody than what you get in the movie. So right. people automatically assumed, okay, well, you're going to get lots of gore that's in here. And then when it came out, people were like, oh, well, since this is 1981 and they're already started to cut down on the violence that's in movies, you know, this movie must have been trimmed to death and had so many, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, but that's not the the case. Is that That's the, the whole, weirdest thing. Yeah, the whole idea was was the fact that they had Jay Lee Thompson was that, you know, the, the censors would take a look and say, oh, this is a director that has more gravitas, mm-hmm. you know, who, who's done more traditional and exemplary work that that we're not going to cut it to ribbons. And then you have the weird conjecture of when it comes out on, you know, like VHS and DVD in various different countries that people are saying, oh, there's a couple seconds of gore here. There's a couple seconds of gore there, which isn't true. And that it's basically just pal conversion that people are misconstruing when it comes to how long a certain mm-hmm. movie is. Well, I think we're so used to seeing films from this particular time period, like 1981 is prime censorship. And of course, Mm. this film did make the video nasties list in the UK when it was eventually released there. Uh, I literally asked Trace that question, Adrian. I said, is there scenes missing from this? Because (laughs) I remembered more gore. And I realized, no, this is like a Jim Gillespie, I know what you did last summer situation where Mm -hmm. he clearly wanted to make a classier version. So he has kills in here, but they're kind of bloodless. But they are. I mean, again, like uh, the thing with the with the weight set, there's a there's a sound effect that's like the. Oh, oh I guess yeah. The squelch is what we call it. Oh, I think uh, the sound <laughs> effects are really good in this movie. Yeah. And I mean, even like uh, it, whenever Etienne gets the, the motorcycle bit, like you, it's a split second shot, but you see his face meet mm-hmm. with this wheel and then you oh, just yeah. see the blood splatter. So yeah, I, I, I don't even mind the fact that this isn't a super gory movie because I do think at least the setup of a lot of these deaths is great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even well, like it, when she kills Dr. Faraday, it's, it it's meant to be just like she beats him to death with the fireplace poker, but then you see this like high angle shot looking at her feet into the hallway, and there is like <laughs> two human bodies worth of blood all over the floor. Yes. <laughs> or when the dad's like walking oh no, yeah, the dad's walking around the bedroom, like, oh yeah, look, the walls are literally painted with blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and that's the the one that came to mind, uh when I was rewatching this movie was, I'm not sure if you guys had seen it, but it's also from 1981 is night school. Oh yes. I love night school, but it kind of, it kind of has that, that same feel of that. It does. Yeah. In in night school, there's like, because there's decapitations, Mm -hmm. you, you in your head are like, Oh yeah, it's super gory. There's tons of decapitations, but the way that people are decapitated in that movie, it's, largely bloodless and you might mm-hmm. see like the head in the trash can afterwards but you don't actually like see it flying off and the blood no. spewing everywhere so it's kind of one of those where it's it's a trick of the mind when you're watching it absolutely it's all about the way it's shot and edited and also trace it is must see it's fantastic i mean i'm looking it up now it was also a video nasty by the way oh of course <laughs> oh, yeah, of yeah. course <laughs> but but it was it was an american film trying to you know do more of the gialli stuff and it's a crazy mm-hmm. movie too but it it has that feeling that everything else that's in that movie is being done under the quote-unquote banner of being classier Right. And I mean, we talked around it this whole time, but if you haven't seen this movie still and you've listened, first of all, you're very courageous and 
it's a testament to you know you wanting to listen to everybody talk but this movie's an hour and 50 minutes yeah, that, yeah. that's coming out in 1981 which is not what you're having i mean this is a movie we haven't even talked about it because it's not really a scene you need to discuss but there's a fucking dance in this movie yeah I, there's yeah, a drag a, race in this movie exactly <laughs> but the, uh, this movie is five minutes shorter than scream and 10 minutes shorter than scream 2 it <laughs> feels longer than both because and i mean again i i'm just bringing up screen because it's the only slasher movies i can think of that are two hours long and like, also have good character development but that's what i'm exactly. saying right like, like i feel like scream justifies that runtime and i think the reason i always forget so much of this movie is because i don't think this movie utilizes its runtime better i i do like the, I, I by all means let's focus on uh on jenny mm-hmm. but honestly like i i'd be hard pressed to tell you any of the of the top 10s names like i <laughs> yeah. so i don't really think there's any development spent on them outside of how they react to jenny because every male character in this movie is a piece of shit yeah <laughs> oh it's so true yeah. and they all want to fuck jenny that's yeah. the other part <laughs> i love it's like uh the the secondary characteristic of a final girl it's like number one she's got to survive she's got to pick up a phallic object and fight back but number two (laughs) always seems to be every shitty male character wants to sleep with her it's like what were the 80s telling us (laughs) and but even though we don't know a lot about these characters you do have a sense of of understanding of them in a way because of how much time you spend and like how the group dynamic you know works i do with like ann and rudy and alfred and then i struggle when it comes to like which one is steve is he the one who dies with the weights or is he (laughs) like which one is the one in the church bell tower and also what is that scene and why does that character disappear for 24 <laughs> hours okay it's it's interesting that you called out steve because steve is the one that i always uh remember just because of the actor matt craven and the fact that he's been in well everything he's like he okay. hasn't gone away uh since he he's he's been around but what i always forget is that he's tall in this when he feels short in everything else that uh that he's been in like he was in what's it called uh, the Stumptown TV show last year. He was in Sharp Objects. Mm-hmm. He was on Justified. He was in right. White House Down. He was on NCIS. He was in, uh, on the show Alcatraz. He's in uh, oh, X Men yeah. First Class. You know, uh, Devil, Public Enemies. Like he's been Deja Vu, Disturbia for Trace. So what you're saying is if it was shot in Canada, he's been in it. Wait, what is this Disturbia for Trace? I'm joking. I'm joking. I've seen Disturbia once. Noted Shia LaBeouf enthusiast, Trace Thurman. I remember Carrie Ann Moss being chased under the house. I feel like that's a thing in that movie. So, Adrian, I guess just to come back to your... Just to go back to your question, like yeah. from many, many minutes ago, like why is this movie remembered? <laughs> I do agree with Trace. I do think it is the ending. Mm-hmm. But when you actually sit down to watch it, that's the other thing that comes to me is that this movie is packing in all kinds of very weird set pieces and not even like action horror set pieces. Like we mentioned, I love that there's a kind of James Dean Rebel Without a Cause drag race number yes. in this for no reason other than to tell us that these kids are shitty. <laughs> like I, I find it really interesting. I, I also don't agree with your claim or sorry. I don't disagree with your claim trace that it's hard to keep the characters apart. Yeah. Like 
they don't stand out in the same way that we would like, but there's almost always something weird happening on screen that keeps you interested, even if you don't know which character's name is which. Yeah, no, I, I was writing blonde guy, black curly haired guy, like in my notes a lot. <laughs> Glasses guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Alfred's probably the one who's given like the most uh, backstory or or time because of the fact that, you know, that he's working um, as a. Is it a mortician's assistant or yeah, like an amateur taxidermist? Yeah, <laughs> something. And, and then he's he's perfecting uh, realistic, like fake heads mm-hmm. at, at his house. He has a pet rat that he carries with him into a bar. Yep, but I mean, it, so it, it, I, I maybe it tricks you. Maybe that's one of the things about this movie that it tricks you to going along because there are moments where it feels long. But then there's times where I'm not disinterested because I know that there's going to be something around the corner. So I'm willing to learn about, you know, whatever's going on. Like, like I said, there's a fucking dance mm-hmm. in this movie. That's not one of the main set pieces of the film. No. And it, it, it's in there so that you spend more time with these characters, which in a way, when you get to that halfway point and you see Ginny, you know, start dispatching people, it, it calls into question lots of the things that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The inclusion of some of these scenes is weirdly suspect. Like it almost makes you feel like they're referencing other films. Like, oh, okay, well, Jamie Lee Curtis goes to a prom in prom night, so maybe we should have a dance in ours. <laughs> and it's like, uh, but the thing is, it's like the film is in production when all of these other 1980s and 1981 films are being made. So it's actually not that. It's just that we think it is that in hindsight. It just people had a lot of similar ideas around the same time. Yeah, I think so. And it's not it's not as overtly bombastic as those movies are. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing, too, right? Because you remove the murder set pieces from this movie and it's actually a like a drama of sorts. I mean, yeah, I guess you could like, say that most horror movies, but <laughs> well, it, it reminds me of a kind of like late '90s teen comedy where you know, like Never Been Kissed. This is basically Jenny yeah. gets a makeover and she becomes a member of the top ten, and then she does it all so that she can have an expose and then fuck Mrs. Patterson at the end <laughs> of the movie. That's the thing too, right? Because it, we're not even again until these mother flashbacks, we don't even know that she's like new to this group, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, again, I feel like that's a mistake because I feel like having that information early on recontextualizes the entire film so you can watch these scenes with just a different, like, you know, oh, she was the former outsider that was just brought in. And you're right, Joe, it's like never been kissed. It's totally Rufus. <laughs> it is totally Rufus. I mean, the film just has a bunch of very odd ideas that some of them feel like, okay, is that draft one of the screenplay, mm-hmm. draft two or draft three? Because even when I watched this film in the first act or so it's not just that alfred is presented as a red herring but i always forget that he's even a member of the top 10 because he doesn't fit in with them at all and yet (laughs) and also etienne like breaking into her house to steal her panties Mm -hmm. i mean (laughs) he's he's part of the top 10 trace so he's clearly a genius obviously (laughs) i I do love in the classroom scene though that the top 10 all have their own desk at the front of the class yes as opposed to the back of the class where they could get away with more shit right but that teacher didn't seem like he cared about the principal um at all no no the second she leaves he's like fuck her okay what do we want to talk about now (laughs) 
I mean, I that is one of the things that I really like early on in the film is the kind of weird pranks that they're pulling, the shit that they're getting away with. Like the drag race scene is amazing. Mm-hmm. But then even this whole scene with, okay, let's it's obviously in there so that we can cue the audience that there is something wrong with Ginny because she's reacting very badly to the frog yeah. leg kicking. But we didn't need a prom night two sequence where this teacher has like a reaction to the electrostatic <laughs> and then he zaps this kid with his finger. The, 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 the graphic that appears on screen to denote the electricity. Um, I screenshotted that because I was like, this is too funny. Like, this is hilarious. <laughs> I don't know what it this was, is doing yeah. in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, but it makes you wonder like, Oh, okay. Would we have gotten more of that if Ginny was possessed and we had to do kind of special effects for that mm-hmm. at the end of the film? Potentially. Um, I do want to say one thing really quick, and it's not related to anything we're talking about, but I just found this like as I'm like Googling through shit. But the, oh, no. the girl that plays Bernadette, the opening yes. kill, her name is Leslie Donaldson. She not only has, I think, one of the like the best set pieces in this film, she's also the girl who gets killed while ice skating in the movie Curtains. <gasps> oh, another Canadian classic. <laughs> and, and yeah, I was like, oh, good for this girl. Like she gets two awesome death scenes and two awesome 80 slashers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, I mean, anyway. th- there's there's many different ways to become a scream queen. There yeah. we go. Well, now, everyone make Les Lesle. <laughs> it's L E S L E H Donaldson, a household name. You heard it here. There, there you we go. go. Everyone watch curtains. Oh, yeah. That's so good. Now, we've been talking a lot about movies that were coming out around like 80, 81, which, of course, leads us into question four, which is can you think of other films of the era, but also more recent that compares well with happy birthday to me. We've talked about ones that have some elements of it, but can you think of anything that, that if you're to do like a double feature that you're like, Oh, this lines up really well. And in what ways do you think that either happy birthday to me does the elements better or this other film may do it better? Okay. So I'm going to go first. Go ahead. I'm going to say Jamie blanks is Valentine from 2001. Ooh, Okay. And part of that is because it also has to do with a completely nonsensical taking off the mask. (laughs) Who is this person? How did they become the killer? It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) But also it is like it's, I think, more predominantly like there's something to be said about happy birthday to me being mostly about Ginny and then all of these men who want to get in her pants. Like the girls apart from Anne are very inconsequential in the film. So Mm -hmm. then you you switch the gender roles around because Valentine is all about the female friendships and the men are completely pointless. Oh, I like that. And they're also all pieces of shit. Every single man in that movie is a piece of shit. Absolutely (laughs) true. Even the cop. I was going to say, I I think the majority of the characters in that movie are, are, are pieces of shit, but that's what makes it like kind of enjoyable to, to watch because you're like, we've got maybe one person to root for the whole time. Oh, see, Adrian, you should go back and rewatch this, like go back and rewatch Valentine, uh, but pay close attention to the way Denise Richards acts towards, uh, oh my God, is it Marley Shelton in that one? Yeah, Marley Shelton. Yeah, because Denise Richards is actually one of the best friends that you will see in a contemporary slasher film. The film doesn't quite know that and it doesn't give her enough to play with, but she is a fantastic friend. And I... I really came to realize, oh, Denise Richards is doing so much more than this movie is giving her credit for. I would agree with that. I'll do it. Um, I I have it because I've I've strangely enjoyed that movie for years when mm -hmm. people 
just were like, oh, isn't it really stupid? And I'm like, no, it's a lot better than you thought. So now I have another reason to watch it. Well, and I will tell, and I told Joe this earlier, but I, I'm telling you right now, the the main title theme for both "Happy Birthday to Me" and Valentine, I think, are nearly identical. Oh my god, I wonder if that's why I was thinking of it because you accused <laughs> me to it earlier. I'm going to send you a tweet because I, I, I like time cued the exact spot in the Valentine score, oh, and then I, I and then okay. the main title track for this because I'm telling you right now, they both sound mm-hmm. either exactly the same or very fucking similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay we, or we piano scores all sound the same yeah or oh, piano yeah. scores just sound the same to me I, you tell me <laughs> um i will actually okay so i'm I'm gonna throw a curveball here and it is something that is very recent but okay. it's a movie that you know kind of opens with a bang and then it's you know like 80 minutes of oh it's kind of a standard like people going around killing people and we're trying to solve the murder and Wait, we're using malignant Yes, it's malignant. Builds <laughs> <laughs> <Hold> up <laughs> to this twist that you're like, oh my fucking god, where was this movie the whole time? And it's that's not that I have an unknown sister. It's that yeah. I have a sister yeah. in the back of my head. There's a, the, yeah, I was going to say there's a face that's behind a real face. Yeah. Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> and god. also, both movies, as we've already said, have giallo elements to them. Absolutely there true. Go. Yeah. There you go. So yeah, I'm going to say malignant for my answer. Uh, it, it, there, there is graphic uh, brain surgery that's mm-hmm, done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. <laughs> holy shit! <laughs> there you go. I will say, in that double bill, make sure you watch *Malignant* second because yes. <laughs> I do think *Happy Birthday* to me would be a little bit of a letdown pacing wise. Well, it's also oh, yeah. because the, the, again, the, the crazy ending of, uh, of *Happy Birthday* to me is five minutes, whereas *Malignant* is at least like twenty to twenty-five minutes. <laughs> so I, I did want to ask the pair of you about that because one of the things it actually re- is very reminiscent of *My Bloody Valentine*, but I was mm. missing a final chase here. Like yeah. Anne reveals herself, it's like bump. Bum, bum, and then we are done. Like Ginny just dispatches her. There's no pomp or circumstance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I was going to say, like, was that really? I mean, if we're going off of, oh, yeah, it's kind of like trying to take Halloween and like, like capitalize on that success. Yeah. There is there is a pretty big chase scene in Halloween. So, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised we don't really get anything like that here. But I guess it's also because there aren't any girls. Yeah, right. that's true. You, you, you've really limited um both the space uh that that could be traversed to i guess to make it exciting because you have to compare it to the very beginning of the movie with the the sequence and the struggle and the chase that you have at the very beginning of the movie right right and you would have to find a way to top that and where things are set aren't exactly fully conducive or or i get i i guess i would think in the the filmmaking style of mm-hmm. the director um, that within the confines of where they are at that point in the film, that, that it's not right. something that it's going to break into a giant chase sequence. Right. Or, or at least that's, that's how I feel. No, but it. I mean, yeah, it's also because, yeah, like we, we already, because, because, well, I guess we could have had a chase scene with Anne or quote unquote, the killer um, attacking or chasing down Jenny to get her at the table because she's already at the table when her dad gets there. The yeah. problem is we at this point assume that Jenny is the killer, so we can't right. have Jenny chasing Jenny. But that's also yeah. going to take take away time from your chloroform montage. This is yeah, true. exactly. <laughs> I really don't want to lose that chloroform montage. Yeah, it's just so funny. <laughs> if there's one thing we need, it is that montage. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm just again imagining Anne w- just following her around, <laughs> waiting around every corner. Hey, I'm going to do it now. 
I, I want to see like the aborted. Like, what happened to you? <laughs> I want to see the aborted attempts where it's like Anne goes to do it, and then somebody else comes in, and she has to be like, "Oh, nonchalant. Oh, hey, Jenny, how's it going?" <laughs> Hey, Jenny, is that water over there? What? (laughs) Is that that water that's near you? Does that remind you of your mom? Oh, my God. She just walks around with a bottle of water ready to spray her with her. Like, just dump it (laughs) on her. Whenever she gets too close and she's like, oh, crap, I'm not going to be able to pull off this chloroform. She just sprays her in the face with a water bottle. Like, that's going to stain. (laughs) (laughs) What I do find interesting about the comments that you're making about that chase is thinking about the movie that uh that jay lee thompson makes just a couple years after this seems like he's taking lots of the elements that were a little bit slower in this and completely excising them in a way that's not exactly the greatest in the film 10 to midnight Oh, yeah. See, I know all about this movie, but I've never seen it. And Trace, I actually think even though it's not a horror film, we could absolutely cover it just due to the sheer amount of penis. (laughs) I mean, you you do you do have that. But I mean, it's it it is in one of those uh, action horror hybrids because he is, uh, you know, a serial killer and he does Mm -hmm. have, you know, the method to what he's doing. But in that movie, there's multiple different chase sequences, and the main, yes, you know, climactic chase sequence has Charles Bronson chasing after a guy who's completely naked. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I feel like I've heard of this, but literally, because you said earlier, oh yeah, he did a bunch of movies with Charles Bronson. I was like, oh, I'm out. Like, <laughs> no, nothing against is, Charles Bronson, but I'm like, oh yeah, that's the Death Wish guy. And I have no connection to any of those movies, so which, I, don't, I don't which, know any of those. Which Jay Lee Thompson does the does number four. He, he directed number four of that, but he did, did 10 to so? midnight before that. <laughs> I don't I don't know if this is going to sell at all, but uh, 10 to midnight is a canon film. Yeah. And it also has Wilford Brimley in it. OK, yeah. I can go for Mr. Mr. Diabetes. Oh he, he, wear, he wears a cowboy hat and everything. I mean, it, Wikipedia does list it as a crime horror thriller. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there we go. It's yeah, it got, sounds absolutely bad shit. All right. It's got very questionable scenes. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, no. We have to do it because Ebert gave it zero stars. <laughs> of <course he> did. <laughs> uh, you'll you'll see you'll see some of the reasons why. Um, but yeah, it's a film that that has yeah, it's but it it is basically the tonal opposite of this movie, and where mm-hmm. as this movie takes its time mm-hmm. and has it's a little you know, classy. Exactly. It it has that aspect to it. And 10 to midnight is basically the total opposite. So things that work in this film because they are taking their time, it's t- ten, at least half to 10 to midnight feels like the last 20 minutes of this film. Right. Which, I mean, in, to certain people, that is a huge selling feature, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's why I mentioned it. I mean, the fact that I mentioned that it was a canon film, you know, that's that's going to get people as well. True. Um, true. The, the one that always sticks out, knowing that they're together now, is literally wanting to do like a double feature of this with uh, My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. And I think it would I, actually work really well. The character dynamics feel about the same for me i prefer my bloody valentine because i do think that it's a slightly smaller cast and you get to know them just a little bit more yeah but i'm sure trace would actually say the opposite because he had a lot of trouble remembering people in that movie too no i i i I actually i'm i'll i do prefer my bloody valentine to this 
in terms of like in terms of everything before the big finale i do prefer the ending to happy birthday to me just because it is so like what the fuck mm-hmm. um but yes while i did have equal difficult times um maybe maybe i'm just um, i have face blindness maybe that's what it is but i think it was worse <laughs> here because there were so many characters yes yeah. i mean yeah. there's in, this in, one in, blonde girl who's just like is you? she part of the top 10 i can't wait for her extra? to die <laughs> Yeah, and she just disappears. You never yep. see her again. <laughs> she was just a townie, it turns out. I guess so. <laughs> but no, my my bloody Valentine, I think that since my bloody Valentine started basically within I think it was either a week or a month of this movie rap wrapping mm-hmm. that they were able to while working on that be like we need to, you know, learn from some of the things that maybe we weren't fully happy with in that previous because when you look at them back to back it it does feel like okay here's some elements that are more the same but we've also shortened things down a little bit yeah. the kills are are bigger especially when you actually get to see the uncut version and 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 see everything that's in there oh, then yeah you can definitely tell that they're like okay we need the we have the kills but we need the kills to be bigger we mm-hmm. need we have these characters but we need to know more about them we need to care about them more. So it does have those elements. I, I still like both of them, but it, it it it's interesting that you have both those movies come out in the same year. One was technically made before the other. And the fact that they kind of go away from it, maybe there was a when they finished My Bloody Valentine that they were like, no, we got this. We we finished it. We fixed the mistakes that we didn't like. Now we've we've done the best and then just kind of moved on after that. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe that's too much credit for them, but I mean, it kind of feels that way because they were like, we tweaked it enough and and now we're happy with it. You know, maybe there was some catharsis in there. You never know. Well, I wonder if, too, because they were in production on My Bloody Valentine later, they were also seeing that audiences were starting to respond more to the gorier parts. So they said, OK, well, maybe we should up the sensational elements. And then that's what's completely ripped from the guts. Yeah, that's what gets my bloody Valentine into trouble and then made it a huge <laughs> failure. <laughs> well, speaking of success and failures, the final question that we have is having re-seen the movie again now, do you feel like it's worth the reverence that it's starting to get and that it's had for the last several decades? Or do, do you think that as time goes on, maybe it's starting to lose its luster a little bit? Mm, I don't I think it's I mean this is like a three star film for me like I think it's totally fine I like a lot of what it's trying to do um I just think that yeah that runtime it it needed to switch your hand in the editing room so uh I think it is deserving if only because I would put it up against I mean I think it's better than some of the other slashes we were getting at the time like it's better than final exam it's better than graduation day like you know so um I'm going to say have a light yes to this answer (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh i'm kind of the same but maybe a little bit more generous even though my score is about the same Mm -hmm. i think that this film is just a kooky oddity and you know i've seen a bunch of the other films that were coming out in 1981 not like the classics but you know i just rewatched the prowler and i'm like okay this movie has great special effects and is so fucking boring i fell asleep in the middle of it no Like, I I can see what people are going for. Like, you can, when you watch the movies, you can see where their interests lie. And one of the fascinating things about Happy Birthday to me is that I can't tell, like, where 
where are they putting their energy? What do they think are the most interesting things? Like mm-hmm. it, it's almost not a successful film, but it's so much fun to talk about and just kind of dissect in that way. And I think that's what keeps people coming back. Like end of the day, it's the ending of this film is so batshit that that's what people remember. But then when you go back and watch it, there's all these other weird little things that make the film memorable in ways that a lot of other slashers just, they never bothered to. Yeah. I'm going to say that I think this is one of the few times where, where this question is almost unfair because we haven't reached, I, I think, uh, the full resurgence right. uh, yeah. with this film. Okay. Wait, okay, I'm glad you were saying that because I was about to com- combat your question and be like, does it have a resurgence? <laughs> but I, I, I just played I, along. <laughs> yeah, because I always stay, say at the beginning, you know, that that these are the five questions that we're asking every single one. And the conversation mm. depends on, you know, what the answers are for that. So this one, this question was literally written in 2017, and I haven't changed it since. And so it, out of respect for for the format, I make sure to have it in there. But as I also say at the beginning of every episode is that, you know, you look at basically any year and there's a horror film worth either rediscovering or talking about. Mm. And in some cases it's going to be, you know, Friday the 13th part two. Sometimes it, it might be, um, you know, the slime ball bull Rama, you know, sometimes it <laughs> might be the, the shot on video film things. It, you, there's something that's always there and it's not until we're discussing it and we're looking at it that, that we're kind of putting it against everything else and we're realizing it. There there are places, there are countries where this has already had this resurgence and the fact that it's widely available to, to rent on many different streaming platforms means that there is an audience for it there. It hasn't fully reached that resurgence yet because it's not something that is an automatic staple on like, you know, Shudder. Or, right. or, or or Tubi or Prime, you know, that it's not there. They're still wanting to try to make as much money as they can off of it. But it, it, people know the poster. They know the film. Lots of people know about the ending. It's just that it hasn't gotten some type of re-release. That it, All it takes is Scream Factory or Synapse or mm-hmm. Arrow or hell, even Vinegar Syndrome magically being like, oh, this is, you know, this is one of our our, our special releases that mm-hmm. they announce out of nowhere that people are just going to buy up because of the fact that one of the, those places are putting it out there. And then the resurgence will be fully on there. But I mean, Tracy, you were talking about that you were just writing about it a couple of years ago on Bloody mm-hmm. Disgusting. And because of the fact that it was on that site and that you were putting it up against Bloody Birthday, there's a whole bunch of people who went out and saw it and were starting to talk about it. So it it hadn't really had that one, but it feels like it's on that cusp that, that, that it just needs that slight little push to be at the forefront again. I, I mean, I do think we are in a bit of a, maybe not in the middle of one, but I think we're seeing a slasher resurgence happening. And I think it'll hit more, or at least we'll see if it's, if it's real after scream comes out in January, but mm-hmm. like, you know, Joe and I talk about it, and we've seen a couple of like direct to streaming films this year that are slashers. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. what, we have Netflix is there's someone inside your house, the movie initiation yep. from earlier this year. Uh, this so is good. a couple more than I'm forgetting, but like, yeah, so I, I think as people as we start getting more of these new slashers, I think people will start going back and looking at the old slashers. Yes, which which is always good. I'm always going to celebrate that. Now, two things I quickly had to mention before we we wrap things up because mm-hmm. of, of of a movie that you mentioned, and of course, an episode that you just put out recently is that my wife isn't in the room, but but I think she th- felt her ears burning a little bit and would feel a little bit sad inside. 
Um, and that's because on your most recent episode of a blade, you called back to a movie that you did a very long time ago that neither of you were a big fan of in Lake Placid, which uh, is, yeah, yeah it's a, boring as fuck, which is a film that she absolutely loves. And then, <laughs> and then Joe, just a second ago mentioning the prowler, which, uh, several years ago, uh, here in Kansas city, when I was, when we had an Alamo and I was hosting Terror Tuesday, I, I, we did a, a late, late, late night showing of my bloody Valentine, which is one of my favorites. And my wife was like, Oh, that's, that's a really, that's really great. I want to see more like that. And I happened to have a copy of the Prowler and it was like, let's, let's throw this on. And we watched the Prowler and she goes, I love this one even more. This is 10 times better. Oh no. <laughs> so I, I like, confess oh, I'm no. in the minority when I say that I don't think the Prowler is good. Like I know that a lot of people do like that. I yeah. think people are just obsessed over Tom Savini's gore effects, which are admittedly great, but mm. that plot is just a snooze. So <laughs> I've seen that movie once and it was in a drive-in um, mm. and I cannot tell you anything that happens in it because again, that's another movie that I just like completely wiped out of my mind, but mm. I remember liking it. I can't tell you why I liked it, but I remember liking it. <laughs> This this seems par for the course, actually. So yeah, no, it's it's because these these eighty slashers, good gore, not much else, and that, that, that's um yeah, that that's apparently me. I mean, again, I can't tell you what happens in curtains except for I remember really liking curtains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, okay, because of the time that okay, so before we we tell people where to find you on the internet, what I like to have everybody do, of course, is to suggest a couple things that are out. They don't have to be. Um, something new that you saw, but something that you saw recently that you think that people should go out and seek out, whether it's, you know, renting, buying or streaming. Hold on. I'm like pulling out my, my letterbox diary. <laughs> <laughs> because you, you were just mentioning about the resurgence of slashers that of course, at the time that this is coming out, we're just a couple weeks removed from sci-fi putting out uh mm-hmm. silver party massacre. Oh, and that remake is great by the way. Yeah, I, I would definitely, definitely welcome. And yeah, right. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm like, oh, yeah, like initiation. There's someone inside your house when we have fucking Summer Party Massacre and Halloween Kills coming out in the same weekend. And and the I know you did last summer TV show and the Chucky oh TV God. show like slashers mm-hmm. are alive and well. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I would pick that. Um, I okay, you know what? I, this isn't really horror. It's more of an action thriller movie, but I will actually go to bat also for um. Tommy Workola's The Trip. This is the guy that did the Dead Snow movies and yeah. the uh, Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. But he has a new movie with Numi Rapace out. And it's on Netflix right now. Um, and it's uh, Numi Rapace. And basically, her, she, her and her husband go to this cabin in the woods. And he has plans to kill her. But she is better at defending herself than he expected. Oh. So I won't leave it at that. It is also a movie like Happy Death, Happy Death Day, like Happy Birthday to You. That is about 15 to 20 minutes too long because it's almost two hours. <laughs> but outside of that, I think it's a really fun movie and would heartily recommend. OK, OK. And I'm going to recommend because I watch it every couple of years and also because every chance I get to bring it up and annoy Trace with it, I do. Uh, I'm going to recommend Don't Look Now, which is Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. Uh, A Portrait of Grief, but immaculately shot, features arguably one of the raciest sex scenes I've ever seen in a horror film. I was just about to ask Trace if that's what, what makes him not be able to get through it. I've never no, seen. He I've just, never he's never in the right it. mind for it because oh. he he's heard that it's slow. 
I, yeah, I mean, it's a slow portrait of grief. And I also know the ending, which I know is like the very, very, very end of the movie and not really the point. But no, I'm just like, uh, no. like, do I want to sit through this right now? Like, not really. The answer is yes, because it's fucking gorgeous. That That's the it, thing that yes. I always forget. You know, people talk about the sensational ending. People talk about the sex scene. What people don't talk about is just how rich it is in terms of like metaphors, like uh, the Rogue's use. Yes, yes. It's all about like mirrors and windows and like mm-hmm. second sight and that kind of stuff and i just yeah i mean we talked a lot about forgetting things hello pandemic brain but (laughs) i i always just forget how much i connect not just emotionally but visually with that movie it's so gorgeous i mean it's uh what's it called they've got the the crazy shot at the beginning when Mm -hmm. you know the main inciting event that part of it is focused on a, a whiskey decanter yeah yeah. With and just how everything's fractaled off in there. Yeah, that was. See, now I'm 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 longing for the days past because it was another one we did uh, at Terror Tuesday here that I think like 75 percent of the audience hadn't seen it, Ooh. just because they were they were put off by hearing about the sex scene and then just hearing about like the tone of it. And so many people walked out saying how glad they were to see it on the big screen because yeah. th- that's a movie that people talk about the ending. And they talk about, you know, who the two leads are, Mm -hmm. but they don't really talk about what's in between. And like, there's just very weird dreamlike, beautiful sequences. Like Mm -hmm. when Donald Sutherland uh, is first, first, like going through the back ways of the city. Yeah. And it's like, things just get more narrow and narrow and it feels like he's entered this entire other world. And like, you don't get that in other movies. No, and it it makes you yearn for other films to be shot in Venice because I think of that and I think of Casino Royale and you're just like, more more things need to be using this almost like submerged city environment as like an atmosphere and tension builder. So good. Those are those are perfect choices. Uh, What all throughout there isn't really horror connected. And I think it's going to be a movie that I know lots of people are going to watch and not everyone's going to um to connect with but i mean we already gave away at the beginning of it that my history starts out with you know uh ho- um not just horror growing up with it but with the western side um mm. so it's going to be coming out in a couple weeks but uh the harder they fall oh okay that's oh, the new that, netflix one right it's the yep. it's like a western too right yeah it's it's a western that just has so many elements in it because not only is it a western uh, but it's also maybe possibly kind of a musical in a way. What? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's definitely, they're not like full, full, like three minute songs and stuff, but there is singing that's done in the movie. And the thing is just stylized out its ass. And I know there's going to be lots of people who are going to see it and they're automatically going to think of something like Django, you know, and be mm-hmm. like, Oh, because mm-hmm. of Tarantino. And but what they forget is that Tarantino, what he's doing in lots of his movies is that he's pulling from other films that he loved. And you have that draw that people will have is because this guy is the same way, is that this director clearly loves Westerns and all kinds of Westerns, whether it's American Westerns, whether it's revisionist Westerns, whether it's really the spaghetti Westerns, and that he's making a film that takes all those disparate pieces, has crazy dialogue that he he throws in there has solid performances makes it just visually gorgeous um and it's a bit too long 
because it's a Netflix movie. So mm-hmm. <laughs> as is the issue, um, but you, it's his first feature film. Uh, he, he made a short that was like 50 minutes long. That was kind of like a run up for this, but it's a film where literally every single thing is stylized and you can't really argue with it because he's in command of it. He's everything he's doing is for a reason. You might not agree with how it comes across, <laughs> but he at least has a reason for everything he's doing to the point where I started laughing uh, <laughs> at the screening where th- when there was only other four people in there during the end credits. Because after the first song, you hear the kachunk and shift of an eight track tape going yeah, into nice. the next song. And it's like, OK, he's still doing it during the end credits. And that lets you know. But, yeah, it's it's filled with like the performances that you have from everybody like I don't care for what else I see for the rest of this year. I'm automatically going to be nominating Lakeith and Regina King for for best supporting actors just for a couple scenes that they have oh, in this movie. Oh, nice. Because like when you get a couple scenes with them, it's like, no, they're doing that flawlessly and fuck you and anything else you see. Like Regina King, <laughs> Regina King has a moment in this movie that's literally going to be on highlight clips for probably the next couple decades just oh, because of how it's me to watch a Western. <laughs> how how poised and badass she is it's just it's i i was really surprised i didn't i was like uh i think this is going to be maybe too over the top and it's just gonna be too much but like once you settle into its rhythm you you watch it and you're like okay i'm having fun with it not only that and this is something that i want to mention to people just so i have it like on on record because i think it's something important to say about this movie um and it's that it starts out at the very beginning mentioning that while the events of the film are fictitious, that these people actually existed. So like Nat love Cherokee bill stagecoach, Mary, these people existed. And what you're getting here is you're getting a, um, almost I'd I'd say probably 90% save for like two small scenes, uh, black Western (laughs) with, with people who existed, But in the same way that people have taken Wild Bill Hickok or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or Billy the Kid and told these tales that aren't uh, necessarily real, but are based on real people and have caused this legend to grow and become folklore of its own, that that's what he's doing with these characters, basically. Hmm. So that to me is cool. So. I know I rambled on a little bit, but it was it's a movie that I think that lots of people are going to like see that it's a Western and be like, eh, I'm not going to give it a chance. But there's a reason why they have like they have all these actors that are in it. And also Jonathan Majors. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, he's oh. he's fucking great. At it, so that's all I got to say. Yes. Great. That's what I was also commenting on. What? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not about his looks. What? Who said that? Okay. Oh, uh, so, oh, so I, I shouldn't say that there's a scene that's contextually appropriate for him to have his shirt off because it's not sexually motivated or anything at all, but you <laughs> definitely see him and you're like, oh yeah, I understand why they were talking about wanting him to be the villain in Creed three. And on that note, where can people find you guys out on the internet? <laughs> uh, they can find us. <laughs> they can find Horror Queers anywhere. Just look for uh, on Instagram and Twitter or Facebook. Just search for at Horror Queers. Um, for me, you can find me at Trace, D as in dog, Thurman. That's my first name, last name with a D in the middle um, on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And I can be found at B still on my remote. And that's the letter B. 
You guys can find the show at Horrorversary, just because I like to keep it simple. And you can find me at Yo Adrian Taurus. And I mean, that's it. You guys, thank you so much for being on this. This was a lot of fun to talk about this film that I, I think hopefully at the very least we get more people to to seek out and give it a try. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. All right. And until next time, everybody be nice to each other.